Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. This is the first in the new series of interviews focused on innovative technology in cybersecurity, where we talk about new solutions to protect our data and systems. We'll be talking with a range of experts over the next few months who are building cutting-edge technology. In this episode, Resetting the Clock, Why Controlling Time Matters, we talk with Arun Sood, Professor of Computer Science, Co-Director of the International Cyber Center at George Mason University, and CEO of Skit Labs. Arun is an expert on moving target defense and building resilient systems. He offers a refreshing perspective on how controlling time can give security teams a key advantage in stopping attacks and limiting the impact of those attacks. It's a really fascinating perspective and one I think you'll enjoy as much as I did. I'm Arun Sood and I am a professor at uh, George Mason University, but uh, currently research at George Mason has led to six patents. And at one stage, we decided to start a university startup where a group affiliated to George Mason has equity shares in the company. So there is a close relationship between the two things. I'm the founder of this and currently I'm the CEO, but I see we have a a chief architect. We have lots of people who are helping with us this and how this is going to evolve is only time will tell. Yeah. And I I think, you know, one of the things that was so interesting about what you've been up to is you're sort of focusing, you're focused on moving target defense. So that's a, a concept we've talked a lot about on this show, but for those who kind of aren't familiar with moving target defense, do you just want to kind of talk about what it is and how you kind of got involved in it? Right. There are many ways to look at this, but I'm going to try something slightly different based on uh, my experience recently at a conference in Tampa. Think of the following issue. Cybersecurity is something which everybody needs for their systems. But it is becoming more and more clear that people also need resilience. Cybersecurity means the bad guys, when they come in, you make sure they don't stay in. So you may have to shut the system down. But that is not good enough for people who have to have continuity of operations. So the resilience requirement is that you have to have continuity of operations. Now, if the two systems, if you design your systems to be static, now you have a problem. If the system is static and you shut it down, it loses all the continuity of operations. So we need a potentially need a dynamic solution and the moving target defense as we see it, as we have used it as a mechanism, which creates balance between these two things. Yeah, I think if I understand you correctly, there's that the sort of opposition between two things, right? Like if you imagine... I mean, what a lot of systems are measured on is uptime, right? Like we are continuously, to make it simple, like deploying power, right? We need to have 99, you know, the five nines, right? 99.999% of the time where the system is on. And then the classic way of thinking about cybersecurity is to actually shut things off because there's a problem there. How do you sort of square that circle? (laughs) Is that, am I understanding that correctly? That's exactly right. And I think we've got to make sure that we understand a resilient system is not only has to operate continuously, but it is expected to perform even in the presence of an attack. 
So many of our systems are which are operational, they may have bad guys sitting in them, but they keep operating. And because of the revenue generation and so on, and because of the importance of the system, that continuity of operations is critical. So you're yeah. absolutely right. This provides a challenge. The challenge is if you have a static system, that system is not changing, and you somebody comes and sits on it, if you shut it down, you're in trouble. You don't get continuity of service. Yeah, and I think... But yeah, I've seen some interesting kind of models, different graphics where you sort of, when you're thinking about system design, you know, thinking about essentially redundant pathways, you know, multiple methodologies for delivering a service or allowing whatever it is, information, travel. And then essentially, as you look at that design, understanding, essentially assessing it based on how how much of the system could be compromised and you can still essentially still deliver service or accomplish the mission, the task, et cetera. And those, you know, I'm, I'm not a systems engineer. That's not my background, but that seems like not a concept that the majority of systems or at least many systems are built with at the outset. You're right. And many systems I see, they don't have security as one of their requirements. It's sort of bolted in at the end of the process which is makes it a challenging situation. But the idea is quite straightforward. Let's design our systems in such a fashion that you realize it is going to be compromised. Because it is going to be compromised, we have to do something to handle the compromise and yet maintain continuity of service. So there are, in my view, there are two basic ways by which people provide higher levels of security. And one is through diversity. And the second one is through through this whole idea of redundancy. And the redundancy idea enables you to actually maybe can help you achieve both things that you are able to switch things around. So it is not static. If you make the system non-static, there's a higher probability that you can achieve security as well as redundancy. Yeah, and I think, and, and so like walk us through, you know, on a, on a simple, how individuals are doing that. So if you think about either together, diversity and redundancy or one and then the next, how when a person kind of understands that those are beneficial qualities, how can you add those to a, to a system? Right, so I'm going to talk a little bit how redundancy can be used. In the case of diversity, we have a particular challenge, and I'll come to that in a second. So let's talk about redundancy. So the idea basically is, if you want to get high availability, what do you do? You use redundancy. You want high availability, you have to serve the customer, instead of just relying on one, one box, you may have two boxes or three boxes, or let's say you'll have multiple servers, or even if they are on the on the cloud, you can have multiple servers. And those servers, if one of them goes down, the other one takes over the load, and you are now having continuity of service all the time. So that's that's one parad- paradigm. So if you do if you do redundancy now, and from the viewpoint of security, you have this uh, this redundancy. You can do continuous checking and say, okay, 
is one of these boxes busted? If it is busted, basically you can take it offline and you can have continuity of service. Fair enough? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now let's go to the other one, to the whole idea of diversity. So diversity you can apply at lots of levels, all the way from the application to the operating system down to the hardware. And that is, in my experience talking to CSOs, if you try to do diversity at a high level, they look at this as a very expensive proposition. There have been people who have tried to do this through elegant mechanisms, but this has been a constraint so far. But there are ways by which, for example, ASLR kind of approaches, which can provide diversity at a lower level. And it is not as effective as if you were to do a diversity at a higher level, but it may be good enough for many situations. Is that a reasonable explanation? Yeah, yeah. And I think you're hitting upon the sort of challenge that I think a lot of people encounter when they start thinking about adding diversity and redundancy. They're concerned about perhaps certainly the additional cost, probably in dollars, but also in kind of in investment in knowledge and expertise that their people need to have. They're worried about, you know, I I barely, (laughs) I mean, I think if if you behind closed doors, when you talk with a lot of sort of senior leaders in the security space, they're like, we're barely kind of treading water, trying to keep up with what we've got, adding additional complexity, you know, only scares me. I feel like I'd definitely be drowning then. So how do you kind of think through that that additional expense or complexity? Yeah, I think this is a very good question. So the question is that you can have different types of complexity. Yeah. So as you increase the com- some complexity, then the cost is higher. And some other kind of complexities, the cost may not be so high. So as I gave you this example, if you're in your shop, you decide to use four different operating systems, then you have to train everybody on those four operating systems. It can become a very costly operation. Yeah. On the other hand, if you were to look at diversity, you have to then balance the question of what level of security are you seeking? So you, and the way we have tried to post this thing more recently is to talk about this whole idea of dwell time. You ask the question, how much dwell time can you tolerate? If you can allow for higher dwell time, the cost, that is the level of redundancy you require goes down and the cost will go down. If you want very good systems and hence you want, you have a, your risk profile is very high. In that case, you may want to have a lower exposure and that will increase the cost. So. We have tried to translate some of these ideas into cost of implementation so that a user can make a judgment. Okay, I think I probably have four hours before the bad guys can do much damage. So let us let us change things every two hours. You see the yeah, logic I, of what I'm trying to get at this. You, you have to use that kind of logic to decide on how you're going to do this. But there is one thing which is very important in my viewpoint. If you do... A redundancy-based approach, you have to make sure that you do not change the implementation. 
you do not go around changing the things like the application, things like the operating systems. Or, you know, you don't go around changing these things for each implementation because that increases the cost. Right. That's what we have focused on is trying to see if you have a if you are using something, we want to be able to use that same platform over and over again. Yeah. So let's dig in a little bit on that. So, and for those listeners who kind of don't think about, aren't as familiar with the idea of dwell time, that's basically just the time that an individual is connected or inside a system. And now that can be just so we're, we're quite pointed is dwell time measured for every user or are we measuring it for only users that we're perhaps concerned are negative or a, a threat? Okay, so the dwell time is really a measure of how the server is performing. Okay. What we are doing is reducing the dwell time in the server. Maybe I let me sort of conceptualize this from a higher level. Yeah, no, I think that'd be helpful. Okay, so if you think about this, a cyber kill chain has basically got three steps in it. You can divide them further in more detail, but the three steps are easy to understand and easy to explain. So there are three steps. The first step is that somebody has to get in. And this is usually done through a phishing attack. They get into, somebody goes to their desktop and they click on something and the phishing attack starts. So that's the first thing, get in. The second step is that once you get in, you have to do a lateral move to get to where the data is. So if you got into some user's laptop, that's okay, but it's not. that's not where the damage is going to be done. The damage has got to be done inside the, on the place where the data is, which is usually a server. So after you get in, you go through what is called the stay-in step. The stay-in step means that you're going to migrate to where, do lateral moves and so on, and migrate to where you want to do damage. And the last step is the whole step of ACT. In ACT, for example, if you're interested in stealing data, you want to do data exfiltration. So the action is data exfiltration. Now, clearly, there are some rules about data exfiltration. If you try to do data exfiltration at the highest speed, you'll get detected very quickly. So when you do this data exfiltration, you have to do this at a fairly low speed. So that means it takes more time, but you have the time because you are resident there and you're sitting in there. And you can take days, weeks, and months to do your complete data exfiltration. Yeah. So get in, stay in, and act. So if we can manage to reduce the amount of time somebody stays in and the time for act, we are going to make sure that the losses are significantly minimized. Right. That is what we call the dwell time. That's the amount of time you're giving the attacker to stay in the system. Yeah, so, and I think kind of like rough industry statistics are like the average dwell time that people realize, you know, after they've had an incident is kind of somewhere in the neighborhood of six months, right? Like uh, someone is in there, has been at work for, quite a long time, right? This isn't like I was in for two or three hours, right? And so the ability to kind of reduce dwell time to a few hours, a few minutes, it sounds like it looked like your goal is to take it as low as like 90 seconds. 
Am I understanding that correctly? In our one of our implementations, we have got it down to 90 seconds. But uh, you are absolutely correct. I think in many cases, something like a dwell time of two hours may be adequate. And the, the point is that the, the lower the dwell time, the, there's a cost uh, impact uh, on the whole thing. So we basically recommend a dwell time, which is consistent with your need. So we had a company called Telos, which is uh, penetration testing for DOD installations. We had them attack our system, yeah. which is an e-commerce system, and which it, and they had complete access. We took a three gigabyte file, put it on a system, and basically told them, look, this is the name of the file. This is its location. There's no firewall. There's no IDS, no IPS, no DLP. None of this is there. Go get it. Right. Yeah. And when they tried to get that file, they discovered that they could get in the system in less than five minutes, but extraction of the file was a problem because we were doing rotations every 90 seconds and they couldn't just complete the process at that time. So they called up and said, look, uh, this rotation is making it more difficult for us. And by the way, all this is on their on their website and on our website. It's described there. This project is described there. Yeah, I was reading this. I was reading this assessment. It's really interesting. And I'll, I'll, we'll make sure that we link to it in the notes for this podcast so, so listeners can right. grab that right on so, our website. So the, but the point was, if I may just complete the story, they asked us to do an, allowed them to do an automated test. And they did the automated test and they came back with the same problem because it is very difficult. And the second part of this issue is this fall, is one has to look at is the following. If somebody attacks us once, it may be difficult to find them. But if somebody is forced to attack us twice, three times, four times, five times, it becomes easier and easier to find them. It is basically if they come in once and do the damage, ha, huh, you may not even ever notice that they're there. But if we are forcing them to do this thing multiple times, then our perimeter defense systems will know that something is going on. And so in that sense, that's an example of, of how get in, stay in, act works with the perimeter defense systems, which are really preventing the get in stage itself. Yeah. And, and we were talking about this before we started, started recording the episode. The, you know, looking for a single solution is kind of you're not going to find a single solution that sort of solves all your problems. But when you start to layer different potential approaches on each other, that becomes really interesting. There's there's very positive interplay. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can imagine if you were an administrator at an organization and you see, right, like the top person connecting is probably like one of your busiest employees. But then if there, there's this other you know, item that keeps connecting, right? Like, what is that, right? If essentially you're, by reducing dwell time, you were making someone attack constantly, they're going to quickly bubble up to the top of being, you know, a very active account or process. Is that is that how I'm understanding? Yes, you're right. So, so, so we basically use a redundancy operation, a redundancy-based system, and our system is called SKIT. We use Kit, and we have recently added a component which examines the system regularly so that we can actually say, hey, we don't know how it happened, but you have some things which have changed in your system. So that has been our approach. We had tried to find out what has changed, tried to establish rules on which 
the data should be exfiltrated at a particular rate and all this kind of stuff. So the the thing is, when we are in this process, we are trying to add components which solve specific problems so as to give a whole overall solution to the system. Yeah. Is this what you we were talking about, throttling? You're sort of throttling connections? Yeah. Is that potential? Yeah. I, and I think that those are very like complementary. So essentially, you were connecting in now it limits someone from exfiltrating more than a certain amount in a certain period of time. For those kind of more technical listeners, walk us through a little bit of how the system works. So if you've got a server and you install Skit on top of it, how does it actually do what it's doing? It's relatively straightforward. So all our implementations are based on the whole concept of virtualization. And that is broadly accepted now. So we have done a virtualization, a VMware kind of stuff, as well as we've done it on the cloud. So virtualization has become our bread and butter, if you like. That's, that's what most of our, our installations are based on. So what we are basically saying is that we are going to spin more VMs than you need. And what is going to happen is that at regular intervals, we're going to take some of the VMs off, examine them, and see if they were compromised, send out an alarm, and go, so on. So that's how our system works. And we try to keep the number of standby VMs to a minimum. And how is that minimum defined? If I'm going to have for one hour, then maybe I need to have a standby VM only for five minutes. So we we try to reduce the amount of resources required to complete our process. Gotcha. So essentially you you may, you know, if I'm I'm running a server, let's use your example for an hour, I then maybe in the last five minutes you're gonna spin up an additional VM and then then there will be some sort of handoff between the two the two virtual machines at the end of that hour to assure like continuous. That's right. Right. Okay. And then are you, how do you handle, and and that's all happening kind of at the application layer. What layer is that happening? I mean, I know data, like how do you think about sort of the, where the data lives? And as you think about spinning up a system and destroying the old one, how do you think about data? living longer so effectively they have you can think of data in two or three different ways there is uh, this thing uh, which is which i would call persistent data and persistent data is stored somewhere we strongly recommend that you have a backup mechanism and our our approach actually will enable you to have a backup mechanism and also test that what the backup is actually works so there is this persistent data. And then there are also things where, you know, after all, t- t- in today's world, SSDs are very common. So you can get very fast per- performance. But if you want even faster performance, then you have a shared memory approach. So any one of these works with our system. Gotcha. So essentially, like data is kept in us. You have a backup system in place, but then also, essentially, as I understand it, like the, the files are in a... Are, are not necessarily refreshing. It's more kind of the application and operating system. The file structure is kept separately. Correct. We are basically focused on making sure that there is our systems are operating in a pristine state and 
where we don't have the bad guys resident in our system for more than the authorized dwell time. Gotcha. And and you know when you when you create these environments, are you you know is it essentially where where can you deploy something like this? Is this you know does it have to be application by application? You know when you're doing an implementation, is there additional sort of custom engineering that happens there, or what needs to happen to actually deploy it? So, so just to give you an example, we, we have started down this road of uh, building systems which are very specialized to the requirements of the Navy. They asked us for some things. We, we built and showed them how this worked. Then we basically said, hey, what we have done right now is we have looked at things like Drupal and WordPress, and there are a lot of uses there. So we have actually built sample systems using Drupal and WordPress as a demonstration of what we are able to do with these kind of systems, which are very widely used. And hopefully we are going to work with some people to adopt them in their systems. Gotcha. What happens if you're like in the middle of a, you know, a number of users are in the middle of a session and the the VMs need to flip, right? Like let's say we're streaming video or we're in the middle of a conference call or, you know, we're just, you know, we're a trader where we're, you know, there's continuous flow of data back and forth. How do you handle that? So we just have to make sure that there is no loss of data. That's all. And we, our system is built to make sure of that. Gotcha. So there's some sort of like buffering that happens. Yeah, we do, we do a bunch of stuff to make sure. This is, it's a, it is a challenge, but it, we have demonstrated that it works. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit from the technology to sort of the environment overall. I mean, I, I think, you know, I've, I've sort of been surprised by sort of the resistance or the sort of lack of awareness about resiliency as a framework or a paradigm to think through. What have you sort of encountered in the space? And also, what do you think sort of potentially stopping things from moving more quickly in that direction? Well, I would say that until about two years ago or or something, there was a general feeling, hey, guys, we know how to do detection. We've got all these fancy ways of doing detection. Detection is going to work. Why, Why do all this stuff? You know, I think people are now beginning to feel that that is, it is not working. I mean, it works some of the time, but not all the time. And when it doesn't work, then we have a problem. So there is, there was that kind of reluctance. But there is a problem that people do have built-in infrastructure. So somebody is having 10 layers of or 20 layers of detection working. Now, you know, they basically say, hey, listen, these are things. Why am I going to go into a new level of complexity, different level of complexity? So there is there is that reluctance. It is for us to come forward with solutions and demonstrations and proof of concepts. And we have to do, and we're trying to do all this stuff to basically convince people that we have, we can actually provide this in a cost-effective fashion. I submit to you that if you have several layers of defense, many of these layers may be actually contradictory to each other. If you use our approach, you may be able to drop some of these layers and hence your overall cost will actually go down. So there is this kind of, it's an ongoing effort. Yeah. And I think, you know, I I certainly feel from a lot of individuals, they do feel that that complexity is just they're, they're drowning. Right. And so, but I think, I think you're right where if you accept that, you know, you do have sort of that watershed moment where you realize, you know what? 
we can't keep doing what we're doing. Like that's the definition of insanity, right? Like we've been trying this for a while and it's not working. Let's try something else. And then when you start to unpack what the potential for that movie target or, or refreshing systems allow you to do, you realize that it's actually, you know, the idea of just starting afresh every day makes things a lot simpler, right? Every day or every hour or every, you know, however, whatever that dwell time target that you're shooting for. Right. Right. So many times in my presentation, I asked a simple question. How often do you restart your servers? Because one sure way of getting rid of the malware without having to do detection is to restart the server. So I asked the question, how often do you do this? And invariably, the answer is very infrequently. Yeah, never <laughs> would be my. Yeah. So and, and the reason for that is there's a cost attached to it. And there is also a legacy issue attached to it. If you looked at this 10, 15 years ago, you brought up a server, you never knew what state the server was going to come up in. So starting restarting a server was a big deal. It was not an unusual thing. So those kind of things have to be able to grow out of it. So now we can restart the server with fairly high level of reliability. So those are the kind of things which have stood in the way. But, you know, technology is developing and there is going to be more more people doing this kind of stuff. And there are five or six companies now which are based on a moving target defense, and you seem to have talked to some of them also. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I, you know, in, the, in the, the world of cybersecurity, and we're often kind of use the terms around disease a lot. You know, we, we, we talk about viruses and malware and infections and compromise and all of those sorts of things, the health of systems. And I think, you know, we're advancing in the business, in the industry. And I think the more we sort of move towards the complexity of, of systems that are, and the approaches that you see effectively in medicine and in nature itself, right? I mean, I think the idea of, I mean, certainly a hospital, a cornerstone of their approach to battling disease is disposable stuff. I mean, gloves and needles and, you know, and surgical instruments, like they realize that to keep things clean, the easiest thing to do is not to try and figure out where all the diseases or viruses are, but just to throw a lot of stuff away, which, you know, perhaps environmental issues with waste and whatnot, but certainly has been very effective. And the more that they do that, the better they do from a virus, from an infection perspective. So, and it actually becomes quite a bit simpler, right? Like you don't have to think about scrubbing everything to the nth degree because you just you're going to use it once and toss it right i agree this is a very good example that uh, many times it is not worthwhile to do a complete diagnosis i mean the way i look at it is suppose you're driving a boat you're in a boat and you spring a leak what do you think you're going to do try to find out do an in-depth analysis of the leak or try to plug the darn thing yeah so, you know, you're trying to recover from it, recover from it. And so only after you have had a chance to get back to shore, would you do a deep analysis? And that's what we are recommending. Right. And and I think to just expand on that analogy, right, like it's and I think this is a little bit like working in the tech space. Right. So, you you know, you, it's like you're you're out on a lake with a lot of in some sort of canoe. Right. If you don't. You don't know when your canoe is going to spring a leak, but as long as you know that you've got a lot of friends in other canoes that you can jump into, you're probably going to be okay. That's right. Right? That's right. And so, yeah, the most important thing is to like either have a lot of friends 
or own a canoe factory. Right? <laughs> like how do you- That's right. But that's that's this is an example of we use these ideas. It is not that we don't use these ideas, but we have to translate them to the cybersecurity space is what is what we need to do. Yeah, definitely. You know, to sort of build on the kind of the advancement of this sector overall. And I, I think one of the things that I'm sort of stunned by is the lack of like really clear measurements for success of any of the sort of approaches that have been out there. I mean, I think when you think about detection, when you think about sort of blocking attacks, it, you know, the, the, you actually ask a lot of practitioners, like, what are you measuring? One, you get a huge amount of diversity of, of answers. And in many cases, the answer is like nothing really very precisely or accurately or things that are meaningful. I think one of the interesting things about your approach is that they're your focus on dwell time is something that's quite measurable. Talk me through kind of how you think about measuring success and and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. The point basically is many of the detection approaches, the point is you have to take a lot of things on faith. And by the way, this is okay. We do this on a regular basis. But the point is if you're going to use AI techniques there is a probabilistic character to them. And that probabilistic character, many times you are not able to quantify them adequately. I've been driven by the notion that we should be able to say quite explicitly what we are doing, not making it fuzzy. And that's that's the reason we've talked about all these ideas where we are very explicit. Okay, your dwell time is going to be so much. Your throttling time, the time is going to take, the throttle will take place in such and such way. So all these are deterministic ideas, but they have particular value. And if we can combine them with ideas which are more probabilistic, I think we'll have a good joint effort in this case. Yeah, and I, I think being so explicit about what are, what are we trying to improve here and what are we giving you here? You know, whenever someone says that they have like, you know, they're making 10 I mean, gosh, seven, eight, nine things, right? Let alone like you, when you start thinking about, you know, we're aligning to 23 different things, right? It's sort of like more than what I can count on maybe one hand and maybe not even using all the fingers there. That seems like reasonable, right? If you have so many things that you're trying to focus on, typically you're not doing, you're not really moving the needle on most of them, potentially all of them. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's, I think it's that's a valid part. But I want to just uh, suggest that the complexity is even more of a problem. So if you are the U.S. government, you can go around having 20 layers of defense. Okay. Then what about this guy who runs a company which has got uh, $10 million of revenue a year? He can't have those, these levels of defense, right? Right. So what are we going to do? We're not going to protect these guys or what? So I, I'm suggesting is... And, and that's why many of these are migrating to the cloud. So that's why the virtualization and what Skid does, it should be helpful. So we have actually tried to do some of this. We are talking to a few people who have uh, several, uh, whose customers are small and they have uh, Drupal websites or they have WordPress websites. And so we think that that may be some place which we want to explore. We can be doing much more to the for the bigger customers but we also want to support the guys who are smaller and are growing. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and and so just to be really clear, like if someone if someone's sort of undertaking this approach, what would you point to as saying, okay, here's where you were now. Essentially, your dwell your dwell time is potentially unlimited, right? If you or whatever you're going back to, kind of your question that you ask, how often are you restarting these servers, right? Like the restart would at least force you know reconnection from everyone, right? You're saying, okay, I'm going to move your dwell time to whatever the refresh cycle is that that you've chosen, a day, a few hours, wherever that target is, potentially down as low as 90 seconds. And then also you can throttle the flow of data to whatever you think is kind of reasonable for those business. Those are the kind of main measures that you would say, these are the things that we're targeting to improve, or are there others outside of this? I think for, especially for small customers, Small users, I think those are the two principal things which we would recommend that you start with. So as we learn about these things more, we will add to this to this set of things. But that's where we think we should start. And let's talk about kind of like what it takes to, to undertake this approach. So you your technology is just at the software layer, right? It doesn't necessarily require any additional hardware? Correct. And we had talked a little bit, you'd mentioned sort of like the level of sort of use of the different servers, like how much utilization they were seeing. You're right. So if you want to talk about in-premise systems, and let's say you have a VMware, you're using VMware, which is virtualized and stuff. Let's say that your utilization of the server is less than 60%. Then you will not require any more hardware to implement what we do. Gotcha. But if your utilization is more than 80%, then you may need additional hardware. Right. But most places which we have talked to, they don't have, they're closer to 50, 60% rather than to to 80% as such. Gotcha. And where, and then from a throttle perspective, you're just choosing that throttle based on like what typical usage is, right? Like whatever the... Yes. Gotcha. So you effectively... You are a user. The guy who designed the system knows that you will be getting to this particular website. That is going to tell you how much of data is going to be downloaded on any query. From there, you can tell how much of bandwidth you need, and then you can choose your throttle time in consultation with the customer. Gotcha. And then, you know, you think that there are certainly they're like the normal patterns that you see in organizations. Okay, right. Most of the time we're we're just doing 10 megabits per second or, you know, whatever it is, but maybe let's say you're holding a big event. And so suddenly you've posted a lot of materials on your website that people are downloading. How do you kind of think about assist? And then now people need to download these much larger files. So that traffic is really spiking. So. Yes. I think what you're basically saying is that you may need multiple parts into the system one path for the conventional user, but then there could be some people who are doing additional work. And because they're doing additional work, they may need to load, download bigger files and you need to give them another path. And on that path, your throttle times would be different. Yeah, exactly. Or just the experience is not is not normally distributed, right? Like you think of a retailer where all of the activity happens in the, sort of holiday Christmas season, right? So bandwidth is just exploding. Usage is just exploding in a certain few, or like Amazon Day, what I forget what it is, Prime Day, right? You think through that. 
how do you think through that design for the system in that way? Can you just, is it just simple to toggle the volumes on a certain day or what are the other options? Well, I think this whole idea of a throttle has to accommodate what the user requirements are. So you may have a bunch of users, you may be even able to do something by which you tailor the throttle to the user. A user comes in, you know that this user is going to go to this website, this website, this website, so their throttle will be different than somebody else who goes to other websites. So you can do all that. We haven't, uh, our implementation currently is a single throttle parameter, but, uh, you know, these are the kind of things which we need to extend our system to. Yeah. Well, Arun, I I want to be thoughtful about time because you've been great in terms of walking through a lot of different questions about kind of how your technology works and kind of the application of it. Really enjoyed you you doing that. If people want to kind of learn more about what you've been up to and other resources kind of about resiliency and moving target defense, anything that you'd recommend, we can put kind of links to stuff on the show notes. So you could, you know, you've got skitlabs.com is our website. And this is S-C-I-T-L-A-B-S.com is a website which you can go to. We have links to several white papers. We have analyzed, for example, the worst breaches of the last decade and try to show how our approach would have worked in those cases. So there's a lot of stuff there. And of course, you could always get hold of me and I can answer more questions. Cool. Well, Arun, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Yeah, we'll check back in and see how things are going over the coming months and years too. Thanks so much. Very good. Thanks very much. I surely enjoyed this. This is fun. 